Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at PodFeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, August 23rd, 2020, and this is show number 798. Well, this week I had a lot of fun talking tech news with Tom Merritt and Sarah Lane on the Daily Tech News Show on Monday. We spent the discussion portion of the show talking about pretty much my favorite subject right now, which is how cool it was that Helma and I, mostly Helma, were able to use all open source tools to create the Taming the Terminal book from Bart's show notes for all of you. It was a really fun episode, and uh, I thought it was very nice of them to let me talk about the book a lot. And I hope you'll give it a listen at the link in the show notes to DTNS 3846. Or, you know what, you really should just subscribe to the show in your podcatcher of choice. At least for me, it's a must-listen-to podcast. Well, speaking of talking about the Taming the Terminal book, last week you heard me announce that Bart and I recorded Taming the Terminal installment 40 of N. Well, that's a pretty normal thing for us to do. But now that it's a book, there's a whole lot more that goes on. Helma did her magic programming dance and produced revision 1.3 of the Taming the Terminal book over on GitHub. And that in turn produced all of the various versions that we've talked about before. But the problem is, how does that new book chapter get to you? The most reliable method requires you to have a GitHub account, but you know what? It's easy to get one and it's free. You just go to github.com and you sign up for a free account. Once you have that account, look for the Taming the Terminal repository inside GitHub. It'll be at github.com slash Bartificer, which is Bart's name for his little business, and uh, then it's under Taming the Terminal. Anyway, once you find the repository, in the menus to the right of the Taming the Terminal repository name, you'll see a dropdown for notifications. Just select the dropdown and choose Releases Only. This will trigger an email sent to you, and from there you can go to the releases and download the latest version. I really wish there was an easier way, but you know what? You're all nerds, or at least aspiring nerds if you're reading Taming the Terminal, so getting a GitHub account is right up your alley. Now, if you downloaded the book from the Apple Bookstore directly, like uh, Mike Price and I did, it doesn't appear that you get any kind of notification at all. It also depends on the platform you're on, iOS versus Mac, whether going to the bookstore and searching for Taming the Terminal will even tell you if it's new. Uh, I re couldn't remember which OS did it for me and the other one didn't, but uh, Mike says that the Mac version does not give you any indication that there's a new one out there, but if you go to it in iOS, it does say there's a new version. In any case, it's clumsy as all get out. But the, the clumsiest and yet easiest way I found to get Chapter 40 added to the book from the Apple Bookstore was to delete the book from your Apple Books library and do a fresh new download. Now, that kind of stinks if you'd taken notes in the book, right? Anyway, I'm hoping I'm wrong about the way this works, and I'm hoping both Mike and I miss some very obvious notification or button you can push. If anyone saw an easier way to do it, I would sure like to know about it. Now, the way to tell for sure if you do have the latest version from the Apple Bookstore is that the newest version of the book right now has a snazzy redesign to the Taming the Terminal logo, all created by Steve. Bart suggested that the bezeled edges were looking a little long in the tooth, so Steve redesigned it to have a nice, flat, modern look to it. I always liked the original one, but you know what? When Steve showed me the new version, I loved it. All of the other versions, including the one that works in Apple Books with the audio player that Apple won't let us put in the bookstore, are always up to date on podfeed.com slash tttbook. Help me figure out how to create evergreen links so that they will always point to the very latest and greatest version from GitHub. While these are the latest versions, you'll never know that a new version is there. 
If I think of a way to help you know that, I will be sure to make it happen. Anyway, bottom line is there's a new Taming the Terminal goodness, and it's the end of the miniseries within a series all about T-Mux. Back in 2015, Terry Austin designed the fabulous logo you still see today for Chit Chat Across the Pond. He created it using a little app called Logoist, and the beauty and simplicity of his design inspired me to buy it myself. I, I assumed, of course, that if he could make a logo with it that was beautiful, so could I. Anyway, I've done some work with it over the years, but when they released Logos 4 this year, I was definitely hooked. To back up a little bit, I have two very powerful vector graphics tools at my disposal, the free Vectornator Pro from Vectornator.io, which is amazing, and the even more advanced $50 Affinity Designer from Serif at affinity.serif.com. The art and designs other people create with these tools are simply astonishing. I'm a member of a Facebook group for Affinity Designer, and it, it would just blow you away what people can create with these. Anyway, I've tried to use both of these tools, Vectornator and Affinity Designer, for real projects, but you know what? They're really daunting applications to me. I think one of the problems is that traditional tools for creating art first open with a blank slate and a bunch of tools. You have to create from whole cloth, as the saying goes. When it comes to logo design and other kinds of artwork for the podcast, I don't necessarily know what I want, and I need inspiration. This is where Logoist 4 from Cineum shines. Logoist comes with a vast array of templates to get you started, and then they guide you through options to modify what you see so that your design in the end is your very own. When it came time to design the cover for the Taming the Terminal book, I decided to give Logoist a try, and I'm really pleased with how it came out. Rather than describe all of the available tools and templates in Logoist, I thought it might have more interest if I described how I used Logoist to create a book cover. This won't be an exhaustive review, but rather a, a real-life use case. When you first launch Logoist, it starts with an option called 123Logo. I liked it. It suggests you write a name or initials for your logo in order to generate automatic typography suggestions. I simply typed in Taming the Terminal for the name and TTT for the initials, and I hit the arrow key to move to the next screen. The next page says you can enter a tagline, which would be cool for some things, but I moved on. The next page showed me over 200 different logo options for Taming the Terminal. They've got sections for them. They've got frames around the words, futuristic, stacked, classic, font effects, so many different styles to help inspire your own creativity. When I saw the stacked options, that's when my eyes lit up. They showed the three words one above the other with the three T's encased in a black box. It wasn't that it was perfect, it was that it gave me the vision of something that I could modify to make it be what I wanted it to be. Now, you might think that all of the rest of the heavy lifting would be up to me at this point, but Logos took the original idea of the three stacked words with the T's encased in a box and then showed me a ton of variations on this theme. For example, they showed me one with the T's encased in a purple box with a reflection on the bottom. There were glowing letters and some truly revolting color combinations and ones, you know, that looked like neon. I didn't count how many options they'd show me, they showed me on this, but I'd estimate it was over 100 variations on this original theme. And remember, I picked one out of a vast list to start with. And of course, I chose the first one with a black box and the white tees. I'm an engineer for crying out loud. You can't expect that much from me. Now that the basic idea of the title of the book cover had been decided, Logos let me into the main interface. 
In the center, you've got an artboard where the graphics are displayed. To the left is where you ma manage the different objects in layers and groups, uh, kind of like a traditional uh, graphics program. You can name the different objects and groups for easy identification. You can lock them so they don't accidentally get modified. And you can use the little eyeball next to each one to turn them on or off. Down the far left is a, lift of, a list of object types you can add. Text and shapes are pretty much what you'd expect, but it goes bananas after that. The power of a full graph vector graphics application is revealed when you choose path in the tools on the left-hand side. Now, I'm not going to dive deep into that because this is where designing by vector graphics by hand is, and I wanted to be spoon-fed for my particular project. But I want you to know that path is in there if you do want to do full de vector design. Below that, you'll find clip art and templates. Clip art is just black and white drawings, and while they are vectors so you can scale them as big or as small as you want, they aren't editable. But the templates are beautiful color graphics of things like a cow and a tire and a baby and a caterpillar and a planet with rings. I think these are meant to be inspirational because there aren't a lot of them, but dropping one in will show you how they were made layer by layer. You can also create templates from your own artwork to be used in future products. I'm probably not going to be doing that because I'm not that creative. You can add images to the file, and this is where I started to get to work on the cover. Steve created that great logo for Taming the Terminal that we just talked about, which he just updated to the modern, uh, modern design. I dragged his new logo in, and I started to think about how I could incorporate it with the art of the book cover. I knew the coolest place the book cover would be visible would be in Apple Books, so I looked up their size requirements. They wanted the cover to be 1400 by 1873 pixels. I changed the artboard size to match and logoist, and now I had some room to play. My, my TTT logo was uh, in the upper right, the one that Steve created, and then the name, the title of the book with the TTT with the, the block around the T's would be the title in the center. So the book was all about the terminal, and you know all of the cool kids use the theme called homebrew for their terminals, which is a throwback to the original physical terminals, which had bright green letters on a black background. I decided that the black box around the TTT in the title should be that same green. Well, luckily, Steve had already figured out the green when he put the command line prompt in his logo for taming the terminal. So I used the little sample eyedropper and logoist to grab the color for my title from the file on my disk that Steve created. By the way, did you know that those eyedroppers in most applications let you sample color outside of the application you're using? That's how I did it. It's pretty handy. Logos had defaulted the text of my title to a sans-serif font, but I needed it to be a proper monospace font with serifs like the terminal. When I looked for fonts, I was delighted to see huge representations of every member of the font family of every font. The list was pretty long, but I could use search to find the one I wanted. I love the way Logos displays fonts but you can because you can really tell and see exactly how they're going to look. When Logos created the title from the words Taming the Terminal, it created three objects for the T's and then three standalone words from the leftover words from each letter. I changed the aiming from Taming to the font JetBrains Mono, and the change completely wrecked the alignment of the word. But I was again delighted to find that I could simply click and drag the text as an object, and I got little alignment lines to tell me when I had placed it properly. Now, I could have also stretched or rotated the words too, but I'm not an animal. I changed their color to the homebrew green as well with a simple fill, but I could have added borders, shadows, glows, effects, and distorted the text if I was that kind of person. 
Now, if I was going to keep the look and the feel of the terminal, it seemed like having a black background with these lime green letters for the text of the book would be appropriate. Logoist made a gentle suggestion. Would I prefer a nice, maybe black to green uh, gradient instead? This is the power of Logoist. It knows this artsy-fartsy stuff that I would never have thought of, but more importantly, the suggestions are designed with the color scheme you're already working in. I thought the gradient looked swell. Now, luckily, I am smart enough to know that my eye isn't as good as other people. I sent my cover design to my buddy Nightwise, and he sent back a bunch of his own ideas. One of the three was similar to what I had proposed, but he had chosen a much cooler background. He had found some stock art that had ones and zeros repeated across it with a fade to black in the middle, so it sort of looked like you were falling into it. I really liked it, but I didn't have rights to that image, so I had to make my own. I'm rather proud of how I figured out how to make the background on my own using Logoist and a few other tools. The first thing I needed was the ones and zeros in a random pattern. I would like you to try randomly typing ones and zeros, and after a while, you'll get bored, so then you copy and paste what you've typed to get enough to cover a page, like let's say a thousand ones and zeros. If you do it that way, you'll notice immediately that you can distinctly see a pattern to what you've typed, and it looks super dumb. Now, I searched for and found a random number generator on the internet. There are about a zillion of them out there. Now, I know they aren't truly random numbers, but they're a lot closer than I can create. Anyway, you tell these generators a range of values between which you want the generated list to be and how many random numbers you want. For my project, I told it to give me, oh, I said a thousand a minute ago, I told it to give me 10,000 numbers between one and zero inclusive. That gave me a text file with a line feed between each number. So it was one, line feed, zero, line feed, one, zero, you, you get the idea. I removed the line feeds with a text editor. So now I had this long string of ones and zeros. I copied the entire contents to the clipboard. Since I needed these ones and zeros to look like the terminal, I just opened a terminal session with the theme set to homebrew, that classic green look uh, I mentioned up front. I simply pasted in the ones and zeros without hitting enter. Then I stretched the terminal screen to be about as tall as my giant monitor and about the same proportions as the book cover was going to require. Then I took a screenshot of my terminal window that gave me a PNG that I could import into Logoist as my background. This was cool, but the numbers were bright, bright green, and I needed a more subtle effect for my background. My desire was to have a diagonal gradient on the background that was very dark, almost black in the middle, sort of like what Nightwise had found, but brightening up some on the two diagonal corners. I dropped in a diagonal gradient on the image going from black in the middle to bright green on the corners, but no matter what I did with adjusting the colors of the gradient, the angle, and even adding more points to the gradient, it just didn't look right. The whole thing looked washed out. That's when I realized that the gradient was changing the black as well as the green because they were all part of the same flat PNG. (laughs) I'm such an idiot sometimes. All right, out to the Googles to find out how to remove a color from an image and make it transparent. Of course, there was a tutorial on how to do it with Affinity Photo, and I put a link in the show notes. Ashley Cameron's tutorial showed me that I could use the eyedropper to select the green from one of the characters, then use the select menu to choose select sampled color. Then I needed to change the tolerance to make sure all of the characters were completely selected. With that done, adding a mask layer, a mask to the layer caused the background, the background black to completely disappear. A quick trip to the export menu, and I had my transparent PNG of just the green ones and zeros. Probably could have done this an easier way. Anyway, uh, I probably shouldn't have started with the background, probably shouldn't have done a screenshot, but hey, I got to justify my purchase of Affinity Photo, and I learned something new, so it's all good. 
I imported this new image into Logoist and I resized it under the rest of my text. Now, of course, the black was gone from under my green ones and zeros, so I simply created a black rectangle under the green text image layer. Since it was transparent, that worked perfectly. Finally, I could add my gradient to just the text image layer of green ones and zeros, and now the background stayed deep black as I adjusted the green text image layer using the gradient tool to gradually become very dark in the middle on a diagonal while staying bright on my two corners. Whew. Overall, I find Logoist incredibly easy to use and the tools are very intuitive. The one thing that throws me every single time I use it is how to edit any text I've put in. The text elements you have on your artboard are shown on the left side as layers just like any other object. When selected, my instinct is to try to edit the text right on the artboard because it's right there, like I, it's selected. Why can't I edit it there? Instead, you're supposed to go to this teeny tiny little box over in the right column of settings and type inside that box. Now, this is not that hard, but if I haven't used, a lo haven't used Logoist for a while, I find myself looking all over for where to edit my text. Now, I know this wasn't a step-by-step -step tutorial on how to use Logoist, but I hope by going through an example of something I created with it to inspire you to realize that even without any artistic talent, you can create beautiful logos and other designs. If you need to design a business card, a greeting card, a logo, or even a cool way to send someone a photo, check out the templates that Logoist 4 has for those too. The name Logoist got me to try it for logos, but it is so much more than an app to design logos. It's an incredibly capable vector design program. Logoist is $40 in the Mac App Store, so you can use it across your Macs and there's no subscription fee. Over at CineumSoftware.com, they've got a free demo download. It's 100% functional, but anything you design with it will have a watermark on it. So it's perfect. You can find out whether it works for you before you spend a dime. I don't think it gets any better than that. I've been a huge fan of the note-taking app Notability from Ginger Labs for absolutely ages. I started using it primarily on iPad, and I wrote my first article about it on the NoSilicast in 2012. Back then, I was using a little rubber tip stylus on what was probably a third or fourth gen iPad at the time. Just a couple of months ago, I again sang Notability's virtues in my post, Why I Use Five Different Apps to Take Notes. Over time, this app has improved with more and more enhanced features. I especially love that Notability syncs across my iPad, iPhone, and Mac devices. I often find features that delight and surprise me, only to find out the functionality was there for a really long time before I noticed the feature. Recently, I figured out a really obscure use of Notability that is the result of one of these enhancements. By demonstrating an obscure problem to be solved that you probably will never need yourself, I'm hoping it will trigger some ideas of problems you could solve that you have that could be solved with Notability. With that preamble, the problem to be solved. I really do need a jingle for that phrase, don't you think? Well, I know I'm not the only crafty nerd in the Nosilicast community. I've, let, I've met lots of you craft-minded people. One of the crafts I enjoy is counted cross-stitch. If you've never done it yourself, it's like paint by number, but with thread on a woven fabric. With a needle and thread, you stitch these little X's according to a pattern. I've been cross-stitching for decades, and one thing that's always been problematic is setting up lettering for personalization. Let's say you're making a Christmas stocking for someone. Has to have their name on it, right? So no one steals their stuff. Well, the entire pattern, down to the shades of gold on Santa's belt buckle, is specified in the instructions, but the lettering simply can't be because they don't know the name you plan to put on it. Actually, as a side note, I bought a stocking pattern for myself, and the name in the photo was Allison, so that one worked out really well. But normally it doesn't. 
They do usually give you an alphabet to work with that is sized appropriately for the area where the personalization is supposed to go. Counter cross stitch is done on easily countable fabric called Ada cloth, whose weave creates this plainly visible grid of squares with holes for the needle at each corner. If you've got an area at the top of a stocking that is, say, 15 rows high, you wouldn't want letters bigger than maybe 8 to 10 rows high. That predefined alphabet really matters. Well, I was working on an adorable pattern for my even more adorable granddaughter, Sienna, Lindsay's daughter. The pattern will be part of a pillow, in theory, if I ever do that part of the assembly. The pattern has a bunch of baby animals in the jungle around the outside and a big open space in the middle to write Sienna's name. The pattern came with an alphabet, so it was time to lay out the lettering for her name and birthday with respect to the pattern. Well, traditionally, the next step would be to go to the file cabinet and drag out some old graph paper from college. Without squares to work with, the task would be ever so much harder. I don't know how people that aren't nerds would do something like this. Luckily, Steve and I have held on to the green engineering paper we used in school, so I figure I've got a leg up on most cross-stitchers. Now, you would think this would be very straightforward at this point, drawing the letters of your choice on the graph paper according to the alphabet you've been given. But inevitably, you've got some variables to the problem that make it harder than it seemed at first. The pattern I was using suggested some text and then the name and birthday. It looked too busy with all of that, so Lindsay and I decided to just have her full name, Sienna May Tondi, and her birthday. That meant the little guidelines they gave me in the pattern weren't going to help me at all. I had to strategize as I was figuring this out on whether her full name would be on one line with the date below, or if her full name was too long, would I put it on two lines, and should the text be centered or justified in some way with the date? When working on graph paper, that means your eraser is as important as the paper itself. Constant changing of the letters is the norm, and to call it a tiresome activity would insult weariness everywhere. Now, let's talk about notability and how it came into the game. Sometime after 2012 and before 2020, Ginger Lab started enhancing the drawing capability of notability. In the old days, to draw a rectangle, you simply did your best and hoped it looked close enough to a rectangle. Now, though, if you draw a rough rectangle and hold still when you're back to the drawing point, uh, to the starting point, Notability would recognize your efforts to draw a rectangle and reward you with a perfect rectangle. This works with circles and ovals and even with simple straight lines. In my Write by Hand When You Need to Think article from earlier this year, one of the things I talked about was using Notability. When I'm trying to think, I actually have to resist Notability's efforts to straighten things up for me. I scribble intentionally, and I don't make things pretty because that absolutely stops me from being creative. But this one little feature of Notability turned out to be exactly the right tool for creating the lettering for Sienna's pillow. I'm so used to using Notability for my scribbling these days that I instinctively grabbed it for this task. Notability lets you change the paper background, and I found they had graph paper options, and I used the smallest grid they had. I started by just hand-drawing in the diagonal and straight lines to match the way the capital S was in the pattern, but then I hesitated on one tiny diagonal line, and Notability not only straightened my scribble line, it did a snap to grid on the endpoints onto the graph paper. And it absolutely never occurred to me that Notability could do this. Once I realized this new feature would work for the pattern, I only had to get close to the points, pause, lift up, draw the next line, and it looked perfect. On paper, what happens next is you realize that you started too far to the right, and now the word doesn't fit on your paper. That happened with Notability too, but I just used the lasso tool to drag around the text I'd drawn, and I simply dragged it all to the left, and it snapped to grid again. I was immensely pleased. 
Sienna's full name has four lowercase e's in it. I only had to draw the letter E one time. I dragged around the first one I made, tapped the screen, selected duplicate, and then dragged the letter down to the next location where I needed it. She's got two A's and two N's as well, so I saved a lot of time designing my lettering. As I worked on this, I was able to mess around with the alignment and what text was on what line and see visually whether I liked it or not. When I didn't like it, it was easy to drag the names around until it was perfect. I was even able to take a screenshot of my iPad and send the pattern to Lindsay and Telegram for her approval. The next problem to be solved was figuring out exactly where on the pattern I was going to put the lettering I'd created. The area wasn't a nice rectangle, but rather formed by the circular edge of a sun on the left, the edge of a palm frond in one corner, the top of a lion's mane on the bottom, and a leaf hanging down from above. Now, if I had an enhancement request for notability, it would be for an even smaller grid size. If I'd had a smaller grid, I could have drawn out the constraints and notability accurately, but the pattern wouldn't fit on the page in notability because the grid was too big. Instead, I was forced to draw freehand, and I had to do a lot of arithmetic. Now, you may recall that while algebra, geometry, and calculus were a breeze for me, simple addition and subtraction is fraught with error. Here's the kind of problem I was having to solve. The longest width from the sun to the palm tree trunk was 75 stitches, but to the palm frond in the corner, it was only 57 stitches wide. I decided to center my lettering on that 57 inches. Now I needed to know where to start the S in Sienna with respect to that width. 57 divided by 2 is around 28 stitches to the center. The text was going to be her first and middle names on the top line, Sienna May. I had to count the width of each name and decide how much space would go between the names. Sienna's 20 characters wide and May is 17 wide, and I decided on two stitches between them, so that's 39 stitches wide for that first line. But we need to divide that in half, which is approximately 20 stitches from the center point. Since the center point of the area in which I have to stitch is 28 stitches, that meant the left side of the S should start eight stitches from the edge of the sun on the left. (sighs) But now I have to run the same type of calculation with even more complexity to figure out how far down from the top of the stitching area the S should start. This got a lot more complicated because I have to add up the height of Sienna May on the top line, Tandy on the middle line, and her birthday on the bottom line, and how many stitches there are between the rows. Needless to say, I calculated all of this with elaborate scribbles and notability, started stitching away, and had to pull it all out three separate times because my arithmetic had errors in it. I think I'll put in a feature request to Ginger Labs about giving us an even smaller grid and point to this article. The bottom line is that while doing lettering on a cross-stitch pattern is normally something I dread, I found it an absolute delight with notability. My daughter-in-law, Nikki, is making a stocking for my other adorable granddaughter, her daughter, Kennedy, and I volunteered to figure out the lettering for her once she picks a font she likes. That's how much fun I had. As I said up front, there's a reasonable chance you haven't ever cross-stitched and might never need to use notability to solve this exact problem, but think about using notability the next time you need to do something a little more precise, but you still want to be in scribble and think mode. I bet a lot of you have been thinking to yourself, you know what's missing in my life? A shirt that demonstrates what a huge fan I am of the Podfeet podcast. This probably became an even more pressing issue for you when the 15-year anniversary of the NoSilicast happened. I have to admit, Steve felt the same way. Well, I'm here today to fill this hole in your life. Steve and I designed a 15-year Podfeet anniversary shirt just for you. Well, actually, it's for us, but you can get one too. The company we went through is called Cotton Bureau. The logo is a small pair of Podfeet with 15 nestled in the upper corner, uh, uh, upper left and Podfeet.com in the lower right. 
We chose black for the logo because it looked best against a variety of shirt colors. You can get this fine logo on shirts in Heather White, which is a tri-blend, which is kind of a light gray, Vintage Royal Tri-Blend, which is a blue, and Vintage Red Tri-Blend as well. This Tri-Blend fabric is incredibly comfortable. It drapes nicely, and it's super soft. I know, because I bought it in all three colors. If you prefer a more traditional 100% cotton shirt, you can also get that in white, red, and royal blue. You can go for men's, women's, or youth sizes, so you can outfit the whole family, Kevin. If you're a sweatshirt fan, we've got those too. You can find these lovely Podfeet 15-year anniversary shirts for $29 at podfeet.com slash shop because everything good starts with podfeet.com. Now, I know $29 may sound steep for a t-shirt, even if it does fill that hole in your life, but I want to explain the pricing. We could have gone to a cheap shop with cheap shirts, but they all make you pay for a large order up front, and then we would have had to deal with getting them out to people. That was a way more hassle than we were willing to do. These shirts are made to order one by one, so they do cost a little bit more. We don't make any money until 25 shirts sell, but you know what? We're not in this to make a lot of money. We just really wanted nice shirts with the Podfeet logo on them. I love my shirts, and I put pictures of me modeling all three of them in the show notes so you can see how lovely they are. If you do buy a shirt, I'd love to see a photo of you showing off the Podfeet 15 colors. I've got a 16-inch MacBook Pro with a 27-inch 5K display, but believe it or not, I run out of screen real estate when I'm running the live show for the creation of the NoSilicast. Between Marzetta for the show notes, Hindenburg to record my audio, Audio Hijack to sweeten my sound, Mimo Live to broadcast my video to Steve, Discord to chat with the live audience, and a Finder window open to get to files for the recording, I need more space. Some of the applications I'm running during the live show do not require my attention once they're launched, but I do like to be able to read the chat room in Discord. Steve and I pipe our audio into the Discord chat, so most of the time I don't have to type to them, I get to just talk, but sometimes I do need to type as well. A good experience with Discord requires a pretty big window, and I just don't have that much space while I'm recording. With macOS Catalina and iOS 13, Apple came out with a technology they call Sidecar, and it allows us to use an iPad as an external display for our Macs, as long as both the Mac and iPad were made in the last couple of years. This means I could use my 12.9-inch iPad Pro as a third monitor when doing the live show. In a pinch, I could even be doing this on a 5th-gen iPad Mini. I put the Discord chat app in full screen on the iPad Pro, and it was a fantastic solution. I found, and this kind of surprised me, that I would often use the magic keyboard on the iPad to write to the audience, even though this is technically a Mac screen. It's kind of mind-bendy, but it works really well. Since I'm already turning to my left to look at the iPad, the keyboard's right in front of me, so why not just use it? Now, you might be wondering why I don't just use the native Discord app on the iPad instead of all this faffing about with Sidecar to send a Mac app to the iPad screen. Well, I'm glad you asked. When we're doing the live show, we want the chat audience to be able to hear not just my voice from my big girl mic attached to the Mac, but I also pipe the audio out of my recording app, Hindenburg, to the Discord chat. I use Loopback from Rogue Amoeba to create a virtual source that contains both my physical mic and the Hindenburg app, and I send that to Discord. And all of this must run on the Mac. It can't run on the iPad. If I use the native Discord app on the iPad, then the only thing the chat room audience will hear is my voice coming into the tinny iPad microphone, and they'll miss any playback from Hindenburg. I'm often playing listener contributions, and the live audience loves to hear that. 
Now, technically, they can listen on the YouTube live channel, but the audio and video are delayed a bit, which means you'll not understand the jokes in the chat room until 10 seconds later than everyone else. Obviously, that's not acceptable. So I've got the iPad Pro running in Sidecar from my Mac, showing me Discord for chat, and all was right with the world. Except we've been chasing a problem where my video and audio get out of sync, and then the audio starts to get choppy, my audio. Last week, I got the idea to test disabling Wi-Fi on my Mac. The instant I did that, the video and audio got back into sync, and the audio sounded fantastic. That was an odd discovery, because in the network settings within system preferences, I had definitely prioritized my wired Ethernet connection higher than Wi-Fi, so it should have been using Ethernet. But hey, we were just happy to have a fix. But then I tried to use Sidecar, and the iPad Pro wasn't listed under the AirPlay menu. That's because Sidecar to an iPad requires Wi-Fi. <sighs> well, I remembered that connecting a USB cable to the iPad from the Mac could enhance performance, but hardwiring the iPad still didn't make it show up as an option in, in AirPlay. It, Wi-Fi simply does have to be on for Sidecar to work. Well, that kind of made me sad. I have to choose between having enough screen real estate and having a good video and audio experience for the audience. I had to give up on using my iPad as a screen for my Mac. I noodled this problem to be solved with my friend, Pat Dengler, who's a certified Apple consultant. She said she might have a solution for me. A while ago, she bought a USB-C portable monitor that she said she'd loaned to me for a test. I hadn't actually ever heard of this entire idea or seen one of these before. The monitor she bought is the LaPau Z1 Pro USB-C portable monitor, and it runs around $190 on Amazon. The LePow, I'm calling it LePow, it's L-E-P-O-W, maybe LePow? Anyway, the LePow Z1 has a 15.6-inch screen, and it's a 16 by 9 aspect ratio with a resolution of 1920 by 1080. So it's 1080p. While that's not very high resolution, this portable monitor still has a lot to like about it. First of all, it only weighs 1.71 pounds, and it's only 0.34 inches or 8.6 millimeters thick. That's 25% heavier and 50% thicker than my 12.9-inch iPad Pro, but realize this is a much larger display at 15.6 inches. So forget all of those numbers, just let me tell you, it feels very thin and very light for its size. The LePau Z1 comes with a cover case stand, much like the Apple keyboard folio for iPad. They both cover the front and back of the device when not in use, and they both require some mad origami skills to fold into a stable stand. Once you get the hang of it, you can put the monitor at two different angles, depending on your viewing desires. The LePau cover stand is not super secure to stay standing up, but if you don't poke it with your finger, it's not too bad. The LePau comes with a USB-C cable and sports a USB-C port on both sides. With USB-C connected from my Mac to the LePau on the left side, it provides both power and video to the portable display. But connecting it to the right side of the LePau did not provide video and power. I could only plug the USB-C connector in part way, and I even showed it to Steve, and I said, what's wrong with this thing? I can't plug it in all the way. I also noticed on screen that it said, there's no video signal, and it said, I'm putting myself to sleep. I did some digging in the specs and discovered that this is by design. The right side is only intended to provide power to the device. The use case would be that you don't want to drain your laptop by powering the portable display, so you'd use an external USB-C charger to power the display from the right and use it as a display using the USB-C uh, port on the left. 
On that same left side, you'll also find a mini HDMI port you can use if you don't have USB-C, and there's also a headphone jack. On the right side, the one with the power-only USB-C port, there's a rocker switch that provides access to all of the controls you're used to on third-party monitors. If you press in on this little rocker, you get options to change things like brightness, saturation, whether you use HDR mode, change between USB-C and HDMI, color temperature, and a whole bunch more settings. I found this rocker switch to be a bit unpredictable. Sometimes when I rocked it, I could simply change the brightness, but sometimes it did nothing at all. Sometimes pushing in on the rocker gave me the menus I described above, and other times it did nothing at all. I suspect maybe it's not making the connection inside as well as it should, which could point to the quality of manufacturing. I couldn't seem to find a pattern to eliminate user error as the root cause, so I can't be sure about that. By default, the Lapau launches every time with the brightness set to 50%. I prefer all of my displays at 100% brightness, and I found the Lapau not to be, or to be not nearly as bright as I would like it, even when set to 100%. I looked up the specs and it says it provides 300 nits, which is candelabra per millimeter squared, by the way. So 300 nits of brightness, and that explains why it looks so dim to me. You see, the iPad Pro provides 600 nits of brightness. So I guess I'm spoiled. The Lapau Z1 has stereo speakers, but they're pretty awful. Maybe it's because I'm using them with a newer MacBook Pro that has the much improved speaker system, but I'm not sure the Lapau could hold its own against pretty much any speakers. Maybe if your internal speakers were completely broken, you'd be glad to have them. You know, the marketing materials for these type of portable monitors show them for being used for console games like the Nintendo Switch, so providing even meager audio would be essential. The newer iPads with USB-C connectors allow you to use an external monitor, so I thought, hey, that'd be fun, let me plug my 12.9-inch iPad Pro into the lapel. Well, it definitely worked, but it's a really silly experience because iPadOS only supports screen mirroring. So the Lapau presents the exact same experience as a 12.9-inch screen on the iPad, except it has black bars down either side and it's lower resolution. I suppose if you had the 11-inch iPad Pro, maybe it would be slightly bigger, but it doesn't actually add much to the experience. I got to say, this is not the fault of the Lapau but rather the limitation of iPadOS, which disallows an extended desktop. Overall, I think the Lapau Z1 for $190 does a pretty good job, especially for that price. And especially if you have intermittent need for an additional display that you want to carry around just from time to time. At 15 inches, it's pretty big and yet super light and thin, so it's really easy to throw in a travel bag to use on a trip with your Mac, PC, or USB-C or HDMI uh, game console. It's kind of a small investment that might be just what you need. But I'm going to take a look at another similar device. The 15.6 inches of the Lapau is actually much bigger than what I need, especially with such a wide aspect ratio. It takes up a lot more desk space, and I don't actually need anything that big. I'm also way too accustomed to a retina display to be able to look at 1080p and be very happy. I blame my cataract surgery for this. I never used to be able to tell the difference, but now I can like crazy. For the same $190 US price as the Lapau, I found a 12.5 inch 2K portable display from a company called CocoPar. That 2K resolution is 2560 by 1440 pixels, so it should look a lot cleaner than the 1920 by 1080 on the much larger Lapau. I'm hoping that the higher resolution combined with the smaller size will be closer to my needs. It has USB uh, USB Type C, HDMI, mini display port, and micro USB ports. 
It's still 16.9 aspect ratio, which is unfortunate. I'd really rather have a 4, point, uh, 4 to 3 aspect ratio, but uh, I haven't been able to find one yet in a 12-inch display. I'm still looking. So I am still noodling which one to buy, and I'll be sure to report back to you when I figure that out and I get it in my hot little hands. Well, I think that's enough fun for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Where are you going to go shop for your new shirts? Podfeet.com slash shop. Want to become a patron? Go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to give a one-time donation at PayPal? Podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join our Facebook group? That's easy. Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to join our Slack community? That's podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.